Let's pray. Father, it is remarkable to us what you can do through such a man. And it is telling to us, Father, that you are capable of sending a message to your people through the use of almost any means. And that, Lord, um, we can hear the message that you've given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we can say, Lord, thank you for sending us a better deliverer. Thank you for sending us, Lord, one to whom is the author of our salvation. We thank you that he has shed his blood on our behalf and that we get to praise and honor him today. Lord, indeed it is true. We say hallelujah. All we need is Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by simply recapping where we have been so far in the story of Samson, this last judge of the book of Judges. This is now the fourth message that we've had over this story, and I think it will be helpful for us to look back. If you recall, it began in chapter 13 with his parents, his father Manoah and his mother, who was unnamed, and they had previously been unable to have children. The angel of the Lord, who was God himself in concealed form, appeared to Manoah's wife and informed her, if you recall, that she would now conceive and bear a son. He further told her that her son was to be a Nazarite from his birth, which meant that certain things were off limits to him, if you recall. Namely, that he was not to drink alcohol, that he was not to go near dead bodies, and that he was not to cut his hair. And most importantly, her son was to begin to save God's people, the Israelites, from their Philistine oppressors. And this son, if you recall, would be a type of a greater son, a greater savior, in fact, who would come centuries later through an even more miraculous birth. Now, near the end of chapter 13, the angel of the Lord, he revealed himself to Manoah and his wife in incredible fashion as the God who works wonders, the wonder-working God. And when Manoah made a sacrifice to the Lord on the altar, an angel of God, the angel of the Lord, God himself, shockingly went up in the flame of the altar and returned to heaven right in front of their faces. The wonder-working God was signifying that he was about to do something even more wonderful for his people. Then Samson was born, just as God had said. And the Spirit of God began to stir in him. And the expectations were extremely high that he would be a most holy vessel to the Lord to carry out God's plan of salvation. But, as you recall... Immediately after he came on the scene, we are told that Samson's overriding ambition was, as chapter 14, verse 3 tells us, Get her for me, for she is right in my own eyes. He tells his parents, I want this woman, even though she's off limits to me, because she's right in my eyes. He is the determiner of what's right and wrong in his life. Samson's heart was not to save the people of his God and king. It was to please his selfish desires, for this way of life seemed right to him. But chapter 14 made it abundantly clear that God was working his good plan even through Samson's bad motives and actions. 
Judges chapter 14, verse 4, if you recall, says, His father and mother did not know that it, referring to the sin of Samson, that it was from the Lord, for he, God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So as we discussed, God ordained this and was even carrying out his plan even through the sinfulness of this fallen deliverer. And Samson's motives and Samson's actions were indeed bad, as we saw last week. He demonstrated no respect for his God and king or for his holy calling that the Lord had placed upon his life. He contrived in chapter 14 and 15 out of greed. He reacted with angry vengeance when he was wronged by the Philistines. He revealed his utter arrogance before God and man. And he only acknowledged God at the end of chapter 15 when he determined that he needed something from God. And through all of this, we saw over the last couple of weeks especially that the gracious God was managing it all behind the scenes. That through his Holy Spirit working, he was working everything out just so that his perfect will would be accomplished in order that Israel would begin to see salvation from their enemies. And one might think that chapter 15 would be a good place for the story of Samson to end. After all, he had just defeated 1,000 of the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And the people of Israel had been shown right before them the kind of commitment that their God had towards his covenant that he had made with them. But as we just heard read, the story greatly intensifies before it ends with a cataclysmic crash. Let us walk fairly quickly through Samson's incredible end here in chapter 16, and then we'll consider some important warnings that relate to us. It can be broken down into three sections, chapter 16, Ken. In verses 1 through 3, I call it the power clean from the power of the Spirit. If you're a weightlifter, you perhaps know what that means. Verses 4 through 23, I call it a powerful man weakened through a duplicitous woman. And then at the end, verses 24 to 31, I think it's best to title it, God Gets the Last Word. So, the power clean from the power of the Spirit. In verse 1, Samson, our deliverer, he has slept with a prostitute. Brazenly, he is in the city of Gaza, which was a Philistine hub in the southern part of their lands. He, he boldly enters their town, evidently with no fear whatsoever of their abilities to match his great strength. And he went into a prostitute, it says, who had caught his eyes, perhaps one of the, the temple prostitutes, to the god of Dagon, the god of the Philistines. And while he was there, the Philistines of Gaza, they learned of it and they sought to kill him. That night, it says, they surrounded the place where he stayed, which was evidently near the city gates, and they waited to ambush him that next morning. But whether they were foolish and just fell asleep, or whether God brought some deep sleep down upon them, we don't know. But they were unaware when Samson got up after he had abused this unloved woman around midnight. And when we read what he did in verse 3, take a look at that verse. Look at verse 3. When we read what he did in verse 3, people like me at least, when we read it, we begin to wonder something. Was Samson green 
from head to toe and ripped at every muscle and did his shirt tear open when he became angry as he took hold of the city gate with its two posts, bar and all, hoisted them up over his head and onto his shoulders like a power lifter, and then, furthermore, did the ground quake as his every monstrous step carried those gates the 40 miles eastward toward the city of Hebron to the people of Judah. I wonder those things. But the answer... Lisa doesn't tell us that. The answer is no. Sorry, Drew. <laughs> he did not change his color or his form. But the Spirit of God did enable him to do something that we would indeed expect from a Marvel movie. But my friends, my friends, this is real. This happened the God who created every single thing ex nihilo, out of nothing. The God who conquered Pharaoh and the mighty Egyptian army with nothing but water and brought his chosen people into this foreign land. The God who performed through Joshua and Gideon and many others some incredible feats on behalf of his people is the God who is putting on an awesome display for us in verse 3. When you see verse 3, don't think Samson, think God, think Spirit. And he is doing so through this human being. And this should have been a tremendous testimony to God's people, the Jews. As Samson crested the hill outside of Hebron, the people of Judah should have seen his God-given strength and they should have courageously taken up arms with Samson and gone and fought those enemies. But we see nothing of that kind after verse 3. Nothing is mentioned of that. But beginning at verse 4, we do see this powerful man weakened through a duplicitous woman. And verse 4 gives us her name, Delilah. Likely, she was a Philistine. And it says in verse 4 that Samson loved Delilah, at least, at least at the most base level. The lords of the Philistines, mentioned in verse 5, were five leaders of the regions of Philistia. And when they learned of Samson's affection for this woman, they sought to use it to their advantage. It seems the Philistines were so tired out at being bested and humiliated by Samson that they offered this exorbitant sum to Delilah that she might betray him. They would each give her, it says, 1,100 pieces of silver, totaling up to 5,500 pieces of silver between the five of them, if she would seduce Samson and discover the great secret to his strength. Well, Delilah, she saw the opportunity to make herself one of the richest women in the land, and she agreed. And she approaches Samson regarding his secret four times. And if you're like me, when you read these approaches that she took, when you first read them, you might be tempted to think that Samson was almost too dumb to be believable. Even as a kid, I think, how dumb can you be? How could he be so foolish? How could he ever trust her like that after she'd already betrayed him thrice? Well, I think I see Samson a little bit differently now than I once did. Yes, he was terribly foolish. 
But I don't think it was in the sense that he was dumb. I think rather that it was in the sense that he was full of extreme pride. I think he was playing around with her. I think he was treating this whole affair as if it were a game. Here he comes once again. He seems to have made this a habit. Once again, he comes into a Philistine land, evidently thinking he was nearly invincible. He was apparently sleeping with a Philistine woman, and every time she asked for his secret, he toys with her, telling her something false, and then ends up tickling his own ego by defeating his Philistine attackers. I don't think he's an idiot, but I do think he's a fool because he's full of pride. I think his whole approach to the Philistines was to arrogantly consider them as nothing more than as a fun game that allowed him to show off his colossal strength. It was him playing with fire, thinking that he would never get burned. Just like so many individuals who think that lust is never going to destroy them. First, he tells her, that he must be bound with seven fresh, undried bowstrings. So, with the Philistines waiting to ambush him, she tied him up. It doesn't say in verses 7 through 9 that he was asleep when this happened. In fact, that doesn't come until her third approach to him. So, I think at least perhaps he is awake here at the beginning of these attempts, and I speculate a little bit that he's somewhat chomping at the bit to win this game. And the result is he snaps the bowstrings off as if they were flax when it touches fire and there's no record that he had any problems with these Philistine ambushers. And his secret is still intact. Secondly, he told her that she must tie him with new ropes that had not been used. Once again, she binds him and he again snaps off the handcuffs as if they were nothing. Same result. And then the third time, she appears to him again. And this time, he gets dangerously close to giving away the farm. Notice, notice verse 13. It says, Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Now that sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? If you admit it, it sounds a little odd. He told her that he could be bound if the seven locks of her hair were bound in a loom. That he would then become weak like any other man. So I picture him asleep. I picture her trying to wind up his locks into this womb. It seems just crazy to me. We don't have all the story. But in verse 14, while he's sleeping, evidently deeply, perhaps he was inebriated or perhaps God brought some deep sleep upon him, well, she has his hair bound in the loom. And the result, of course, is exactly the same. He woke up from his sleep. He simply freed himself from his binding. But if you think about it, he's beginning to hold that fire very close to his chest. He's now at least talking about the part of his body that actually was true. And now we see Delilah find success. In verses 15 through 16, she begins to press him hard. This is the same thing that happened to him back in chapter 14, if you remember, when his wife at the time pressed him hard to learn the answer to the riddle that he had posed to the Philistines. 
And the result was the same in both situations. Here Delilah says to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is far from me? She goes right to his emotions. And she pressed him hard with such words, it says in verse 16, day after day, so that it says his soul was vexed to death. Now that word vexed in the ESV is the same word at root as it is in chapter 10, verse 16, where it says there that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. It seems that Samson lost patience with Delilah's constant attempts. The game was no longer any fun. And blinded by his sheer arrogance and annoyed by her pressing, he simply, it seems, gave in and told her the truth, probably not thinking that it would really matter anyway. Look at verse 17. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And he did not seem to realize what he had done, because in verse 20, when the Philistines attacked him for the fourth time, he gets up and says, I will go out as at other times, and I will shake myself free, he says. But he couldn't. He thought he would be, but now he can't. And we learn why. His strength had left him because, it says, the Lord had left him. Evidently, Samson losing his hair through such arrogant folly was the last straw for the Lord. I do not want you to think that his power actually resided in his hair. I don't think that's what it's telling us. I think this is the last straw. Samson the Nazarite had gone near dead bodies on several occasions. We've seen that. Samson the Nazarite had apparently shirked his calling by drinking from the vine. I think we've seen that. And Samson the Nazarite had now broken the third part of his Nazarite vow. He had cut his hair. He had now fully disregarded, completely disregarded, the Lord's call upon his life, and the Lord left him. Not because his power was found in his hair, but his power was found with the Spirit of God, the one who he had just fully rejected. Those words, the Lord left him, should sink down deep in our hearts and minds. Well, the Philistines, they seized him. They gouged out his eyes, it says. Irony of ironies for the man whose creed was to do whatever seemed right in his own eyes and got into so much trouble because of his eyes. And they took him back down to Gaza in bronze shackles. He returns to the very city where he had previously tore off the gates, lifted them over his shoulders, and walked away. He goes back to the same town and adding insult to injury, they made him a slave by forcing him to grind wheat at the prison mill. So with whatever strength that Samson had left, it was now being used in the service of feeding God's enemies. But the author of Judges, again, beautifully builds up our anticipation in verse 22. He's so good. It says, But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. We begin to see that there's hope. And indeed, in verses 23 through 31, God got the last word. The Philistines, in verse 23, commenced a great celebration to their god Dagon, likely at the temple to Dagon. They sacrificed to their idol, and they offered these words to their false god. They said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. In the next verse, they call him the ravager of their country, who had killed many of their people. In verse 25, it tells us their hearts were merry. 
Likely they were drunk. And they decided to have Samson come and to entertain them. They wanted some sport with God's deliverer. They wanted to toy with him just as he had toyed with them. So they called him from the prison. And they made him stand between the pillars of the temple. And the anticipation continues to mount. And in verse 27, we learn the full situation. That location of this party was full of men and women of Philistia. It says all the lords of the Philistines were there. So all five of them, the main people in the land. It says there were about 3,000 people just up on the roof looking down at what was evidently some kind of a courtyard at this structure. It seems that all the important people of the land were there. The lords, the leaders, the prominent figures of Philistia, all assembled to drink and to laugh and to praise their god Dagon. But the one true God had said at Samson's birth, back in chapter 13, that through him, God would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the one true God always accomplishes what he says. In verse 28, Samson prayed. Again, just like in chapter 15, his prayer had some good components and also some not-so-good components. It was good that he acknowledged there God's sovereign might over his situation and that he looked to God for deliverance. But he also revealed what his true motivation was, I think, when he says that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. The writer has brought it all back to that point again. It seems for Samson it was ultimately still about what he could see. And though there's no recorded answer from the Lord, we do know that he acted. Samson in verse 29, with some hair now back on his head, and God's strength evidently now back with him, grasped the two middle pillars of the building, the load-bearing essential pillars to the whole structure, and he leaned against them with all of his strength. In verse 30, we see his last words, which weren't so great. He says, let me die with the Philistines. Then the house fell upon the lords and all the people who were in it. Samson had now killed more people at his death than he did in the totality of his life. What a sad ending, but yet also what a glorious ending. For 20 years, this man judged Israel. For 20 years, full of pride. 20 years of power displays. 20 years of making fools of the Philistines. 20 years that ended with a crash. And God used every bit of it for his purpose. So as we look through the lens of God's sovereignty over the story of Samson, I think we see four crucial warnings to us here in chapter 16. First warning that I want to relate is that lustful eyes lead to devastated lives. Consider Samson's ongoing life of lust. In chapter 14, verse 3, he said, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. In chapter 14, verse 7, he says, it says, She was right in Samson's eyes. In chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Samson went to a prostitute and he went into her. In chapter 16, verse 4, it says, After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And at his end, it all came crashing down. If Samson 
were to live this kind of a life of lust today, I think the verses that would be written would say something like this. Verse 1. Disregarding all his parents' warnings, Samson found a way to bypass the protection set up on his iPhone and began to secretly look at pornography. Verse 2. Though Samson knew that ogling the scantily clad woman was wrong, he stored away the picture of her in his heart that he might fantasize later. Verse 3. Even though he'd been strongly encouraged to wait until the day of his marriage, Samson chose to start sleeping with his college girlfriend. Verse 4. Though Samson was now living with a girl he'd recently met at a bar, he still snuck away most nights to watch the dark videos that brought him greater satisfaction. The verses, of course, could go on and on for both men and women, even to darker places still where hearts are broken and families are destroyed and God is altogether abandoned. And sadly, I think if we would admit it, we would say that verses like these could be written in lives all around us. Just as with Samson, I want you to understand, just as with Samson, such lust will lead to devastation if we don't turn from it. Proverbs chapter 5 says this, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet, hear this, go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, or the netherworld. The ultimate end of an unrepentant life of lust is death. Proverbs chapter 7, two chapters later, the writer says, With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. My friend, I'm not trying to scare you, but I do want to help you wake up. If you continue down the path of lust, it too will destroy your life. It will lead to devastating consequences in the home. It will lead to devastating consequences in your spiritual life. It will lead to devastating consequences in your mind, reshaping it into a different form, they tell us today, that viewing that stuff constantly does things to you. And ultimately, the end of it all is death. Now, for a true Christian, yes, sin is something we're going to battle. We have to fight against it. But I'm trying to tell you, if you're basing your Christianity upon some faith that you had exemplified or declared or shown at some previous day, but now you're living a life of unrepentant lust, please understand that faith is not real. Repent of it. Samson was a man who got so dangerously close to destruction. He kept on thinking so arrogantly that it would never burn him. And in the end, there he is, eyes gouged out, only thinking, I wish I had them back. 
Please grasp the significance of this and understand that for some of us, some of you here today, this is a wall that even Samson-like strength can't defeat on its own. You need the church of God. You need other brothers and sisters to come alongside of you, help you to radically amputate some of those things out of your life that lead you down that evil road, to help you see ultimately and savor the person of Jesus Christ on a daily basis so that you can have the fight and the protection to avoid going down this evil path. But there is help. But you must ask. Oh, please understand that if you continue down this road, it will destroy you and it will probably leave others in your wake as well. Please heed this warning today. Come talk to me. Come talk to another elder. Go talk to another sister, gals, if this is a problem you have. There's so many forms. Sexuality, homosexuality, there's so many different forms, so many different avenues we can go down that can lead us towards evil. Please talk to a brother or sister in Christ and let us help each other looking to God. Second warning today. There are real consequences when God's people take him for granted. Dale Ralph Davis accurately writes, I think, about Samson when he says this. Samson is a paradigm of Israel. One raised up out of nothing, richly gifted, who panders around with other loves, and yet apparently always expects to have Yahweh. So Israel has received grace on top of grace, yet persistently carries on her affairs with Baal, utterly ignorant of her true condition, blithely assuming that all is well and that Yahweh is always at her disposal. She is a people who does not know that Yahweh may depart from her, just as a church may believe that God would never write Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, would never write Ichabod over it. How tragic, he writes, when God's professing people cannot see that they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What a paradigm for Israel. Sadly, let it not be a paradigm for church as it often can be. God, through Samson, was ultimately seeking to save Israel from a far greater enemy than the Philistines. Through Samson, he wanted them to see their own darkened image. He wanted them to see that they had lustfully rejected him as their God and king. And he wanted them to see this so that they might turn to a far greater deliverer than even Samson. That they might turn to God himself. This whole book is meant to be a wake-up call to God's people. So Riverside, please realize that there are real consequences when God's people take him for granted. Listen to the words of King Jesus in his words to the church at Ephesus when he writes in the book of Revelation chapter 2. To the church at, Revela the church at Ephesus, Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And then catch this, you who think that grace means that God only ever tells us good things and never, ever warns us. Catch these words of Jesus after he's told them to repent. If not, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. My friends, apathy towards God is a church killer. If we walk away from our first love, if we allow complacency to set in, it will ultimately lead us down the path to destruction. Which is why when the word of God is preached, when the word of God is taught, when the Bible is taught in small groups and a myriad of other places to kids and adults of like, the first priority must be pointing people to the significance of Jesus Christ and his cross. That we might never forget the accomplishments for us in the gospel, that we might serve him with love throughout all of our days. We can never lose sight of that. Apathy sets in when God's people take their eyes off the cross. And Jesus says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Oh, there was a day when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus when he said some great things. There was a day when they were walking in bold love of Jesus and for others. And now here we have in the book of Revelation, Jesus warning them that if they don't turn, they will be removed. And today, if you go to the city of Ephesus, you see ruins. You see ruins and you don't see a vibrant, vibrant gospel-centered church other than the ones that are now going back from other places into Greece and Turkey and bringing the gospel message back to them. So third truth, third warning. Third warning is the sovereign God will never surrender his glory to our Dagon's. In verse 23 of chapter 16, something like a challenge is made towards the Lord. As the Philistines sacrificed to Dagon, they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. They think that Dagon had done a great thing for them. But we know, if you recall from back in chapter 14, that it said that it was all from the Lord. All the events that we have been considering throughout this book, all of them were of the Lord's doing, even his leaving here of Samson. They were all part of his grand plan. So when the Philistines made this claim in verse 23, God's honor was put on the line. His name was at stake, and the author of Judges couldn't have set up the ending to this chapter any better. For in the end... The Lord was proved to be the one true God, even right there in Dagon's temple as it all collapsed down upon them. God will never surrender his glory to the little Dagons of your life either. He will never stop. He will never give up pursuing. And this is both negative and positive. It's both a warning and it's a joy. It's a negative in that he will ultimately hold you accountable for your idols if you don't turn from them. Oh, just this week I was reading with our kids Acts chapter 20 where it's Herod the king who has been boastful and prideful and had already killed one of the disciples, James, with the sword. And it says near the end of Acts chapter 12 that on an appointed day Herod put on his robes, he took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. So because of his words, they were saying to him, You're like a God. You're not like a man. 
And immediately it says, verse 23 of Acts 12, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. His idol was himself. His Dagon was the pleasure he got from the praise of others. And it ultimately was his undoing. God will never surrender his right over every single human life. We will either face his judgment in hell or we will be received into his family forever in his presence. And here we see a man who would not relent from his idolatry. That is a warning to us. But with that, there's also the positive side to a God who doesn't give up. He won't let his true people stay where they are, but will always lead them forward because his name's at stake. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I have to go back and remind myself that because there are times I think, boy, I'm not perfecting a whole lot. And i got to remind myself of the promise that he is bringing me to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. And I bet, Christian, you feel the same way at times. That it doesn't seem like you're advancing very far. It seems like those idols that have been around are just so tempting for you. He will never give up on his people. He will keep on working what he has begun in your life. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's perfecting you. He's making you more like God. So that is a comfort. To know that he doesn't just leave us to our own little gods. No, he continues to work in our life to chop them down. That we might better behold his glory. Fourth warning. With no place to flee from God's judgment, we can only turn to his grace. The Philistines, though they made every effort to defeat Samson, God's deliverer, they ultimately ended up facing God's judgment. In verse 30, he, Samson, he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all of the people who were in it. He did more death at his death than he did in all of his life. My friends, all of this came upon them through the Lord. Sinners can never flee from the one who has ordained all things and sovereignly brings all things to come. We cannot outfox him. We cannot protect ourselves from him. We cannot raise up a force to defeat him. There is nowhere that sinners can flee from the right judgment of a holy God, the one who is proper to hold us to account. But we can turn around. But we can relent. But we can repent. And at this, when we do so, his arms are always wide open. The Apostle Peter says to people who are hearing the gospel in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Turn back. Repent, look to Jesus, and your sins are gone. As far as the east from the west, the psalmist says. Repent, therefore, and turn back, and your sins will be removed, expunged, as if they've never happened. 
The righteousness of Christ given to you. All of your sins paid for and gone forever. If you will turn and look to Jesus in faith. His grace is ready to meet us because the perfect deliverer has come. King Jesus has arrived. The type has been fulfilled. The anti-type came and he accomplished it all for us. Oh, he shed his blood in payment for your sins and mine. And so all of us who think about the battle with lust, all of us who think about what it is like to be tempted to go towards other avenues, other roads, other idols, all of us who are tempted to become complacent and apathetic in this life, all of us like you and me, we can look to the grace of God and we can say our sins are forgiven and more his power of his spirit is given to us to fight and eventually grow, win out, and become like him. He is doing a good thing. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this teaching on this man, Samson, Lord, that we see great power from you, even as we see a life that when it walks away from you, experiences such tragedy. And Lord, in it, we admit that even through that, you work, and that does give us hope. So Lord, I pray that we would be a people who cling tight to your Son, who, Lord, consider the words of that song, Lord, that though we feel all of the sorrows of life, the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, and we will see him face to face and be able to say over all things that it is well with our souls. And we pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus.